Hello and welcome to Southern Park Gallery's podcast, a place where we delve deeper into the practice of artists in our programme through conversations, interviews and readings. In this episode, recorded live as part of our events programme for Canada Power Williams' exhibition, Tilt Shift, Shadows of the Season Sun, art critic and writer Hetty Judah joins artist Candida Power Williams in conversation. Thank you everyone for coming on this very, very warm evening. We're going to talk for about 45 minutes and then we'll have a bit of time for questions afterwards. Candida, I think it is fair to say that you're a maximalist. Yeah. Um, so I'm, we're going to try and kind of work our way in a kind of approximately linear way through your work. And when we chatted the other day, I kind of felt like actually, despite the fact that this is a, a quite a big overview of work you've made and actually almost in, over the last 10 years mm-hmm. it, it almost makes sense to go through it chronologically just because there's a kind of flow through of thought so I wanted to start off uh, actually 10 years ago when you had you were at the British school in Rome mm-hmm. um, can you tell us a bit about what you were there to research and how that started to kind of morph into the ideas that we're looking at in this show today. Yeah, so 2013, <clears throat> I was at the British School of Rome, <coughs> excuse me, um, and I went there to uh, research, well, I went with the idea to look at uh, various tourist guides throughout history, so right back to sort of medieval and early tourist guides, and look at how the objects were being displayed or presented to people coming to visit Rome and how that had shifted through time, which ones were still around and the kind of absurd gestures that you have or you're um, told to have with those objects, so like rubbing a foot. And then... So it's like a choreography around monuments, which I think is really interesting mm. looking at the performance works that you've got here. Yeah, definitely. Like movement and choreography, gesture, actions, always really central. Um, and I was I was looking for really absurd gestures as well, specifically. So not just rubbing foot, but like there are objects there which get, which have been which are misconstrued, like the mouth of truth, which is there's a sort of version of in uh, the late gallery, um, because that was actually a I'm sure everybody knows this, but it was actually a um, the cover for a oh my god the words gone from my head from. Uh, the drainage, <laughs> manhole cover. I don't know you. about this at all. Tell us about the manhole cover. Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah. I don't know so this. it was a manhole cover. What is the mouth of truth? It's um, now up on a uh, on a wall, and the idea is that you put your. Well, I think it started in like, was was in a film where you put your hand in, and it's going to bite your hand off if you are not telling the truth. And there's a film when some guy does that, and he's trying to flirt with a woman. And this and is now, in Rome. Yeah, and now there's like. A huge queue every day of tourists going to put their hand in. I can sort of see John Walter looking at me, and I feel like you definitely know this, don't you? Yeah, because um, uh, you also lived in Rome, don't you? So <laughs> everyone who's spent any time in Rome has seen the queue. Right. Um, anyway, so yeah, things like that. Really absurd stories. I was also particularly looking for ones that involved women, but actually it became it became much more general in, in that piece or in that show that I did as a result of that. So uh, that all of the sort of grey works in the late gallery relate to that show. There's this sort of greying out of colour from that show. It's covered everything with grey because, you know, 
in in Rome everything's white that didn't used to be so is that the show of the magnificent title vernacular the vernacular history of the golden rhubarb it is yeah the only i think the only thing that was color really just color was the um rhubarb and the tongue fountain yeah we'll come to the tongue fountain later because that's fantastic so while you were in rome then and you were looking at these guidebooks you started to also look at other things and i think what's really interesting is that you were looking at gardens, but then it also connected to your personal history as well, because mm-hmm. you have a kind of family connection to gardens and garden design and structures as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when I was in Rome, I got really, I got really interested in the courtyards, and then this idea of enclosed gardens, and then generally the gardens, the, the sort of magnificent gardens, right through to the more bombastic ones like uh, Bommaso, which is just outside Rome actually. Um, places like the Villa d'Este, which is really a performance of water. Um, so I visited loads. Somebody I was there with was doing research into the fountains, and there's something like 2,000 fountains there. And he was cycling off every day to go and drink from every fountain, so I kind of went along on these little trips with him. Um, but yeah, the gardens. And then, uh, well, my dad's an architect, um, and my brother is a, well, he was a conservation gardener and was working for uh, English Heritage and National Trust. So the kind of conversations that we would have or around and things that we'd visit as a family were gardens and architecture, a lot of it. So you spend a lot of time thinking about it and thinking about the structures of it and thinking about the choreography of moving through the garden. Yes, exactly. And then your brothers also work specifically on mazes and labyrinths as well, isn't he? Yeah, so when he was at Rest Park, there was... Well, he didn't actually work on it, but one of his colleagues was was, uh, re-mowing one of the labyrinths that used to be in there. So there used to be thousands of labyrinths and mazes across England, which have mostly been mown out or grown out. Um, But yeah, they restored one there. um, And then I made a piece last summer um, orbit within the echoes which is about labyrinths and it sort of follows the choreography that is in uh, the Iliad or described in the Iliad because there's this idea that uh, labyrinths there might have been a labyrinth dance that it might have been uh, much more of a display to experience the labyrinth can you I've never heard of there being this description of a dance and can you tell us a bit about how they it's, describe it? It's done in three parts. Oh, I'm gonna butcher the description. Okay. How does it how does it come into the Iliad, the idea of a labyrinth dance? Oh my god, I can't I like I can't I can only sort of picture the way that I used it rather than the full description of the section. But also I I um I know about that because of Charlotte Higgins' book, The Red Thread. Right, 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 right which is like, the, was the most amazing resource for that uh, research. But yeah, it's basically, there's like various um, coiling movements and they change in, it, there's like three parts. One is in the round, I can't actually remember now. <laughs> but yeah, it like shifts through. And the idea is that it's kind of ritual movement that's, to, and is there a kind of symbolic, is there, is there some kind of symbolic, um, significance to the labyrinth as well yeah so the the labyrinth yeah in different cultures and different parts of the world it has different types of significance but yeah the idea is really that it's a place of contemplation so the fact that it could have also been a dance means that that kind within that context it was a sort of meditative dance potentially but it's it's actually a myth it probably didn't have any relationship to dancing 
So it's, yeah, but um, but I like this idea that you, you we were already getting this idea coming through from what you've been talking about of all of these layering histories and misunderstandings and slippages and meanings disappearing and changing and new symbolism being kind of overlaid onto things like you know, the kind of truth-telling manhole cover. Yes, exactly. Um, so I think one of the first kind of sets of symbols that you started working with after Rome was the tarot deck, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. So there are a few works in the other gallery that relate, that they're kind of 3D renderings 3D, of the yeah. tarot deck. There's the Wheel of Fortune. Uh, and the Seer and... Oh, what's the other one in there? Can't picture it. Oh, Hand, which would normally be called Hanged Man. There's quite a lot of those, so I couldn't remember which one I'd put in there. <laughs> um, there's 78 of those little dioramas because there's 78 cards so you made one for each yeah wow <laughs> but i mean were you are you super spiritual and into tarot and divination or was this just more to do with being fascinated with the kind of mechanics of it or the theater of it it's the latter for sure um but i am i do find i do find it's a way of thinking that is closer to something that i can use um, than other types of um, kind of philosophical thoughts or religions. Like it's definitely, to me, it's more useful to think of myself and my relationship to the world through those lenses um, and uh, the potential that that can offer. Um, but yeah, I am quite cynical, like with, even with my, my own use of those things. So it's like the, the show that the three-dimensional tarot deck was in, um, it was called the Gates of Apophenia, and Apophenia is is seeing things, in, seeing patterns in things that aren't really there, or probably aren't really there. So I guess it is just like a, it's it's seeing coincidences in how you use that, but sort of knowing also that it isn't it isn't it is just a coincidence. So you're almost kind of playing yourself. Yeah, but I think that I mean I think this also is kind of at the nub of so much of what you're doing, which is this idea of the way that we create systems to understand or structures that we can understand the world by because just to encounter everything is just chaos or un an unconnected mass of stuff is, is overwhelming and so mm -hmm. we try and organize it mm -hmm. exactly yeah and that kind of extends into god design as well as this whole world of sim symbols and predictions and prophecies and mm -hmm. yeah so the, the whole kind of idea of the kind of metaphor of the garden is a controlled, man-made, controlled nature. So when you, I think you, because you, we connected, I think, ages ago when you were doing some stuff about Barbara Walker, the feminist mm -hmm. um, writer, and you recommended a couple of books to me. And she's really interesting because she's somebody that's been kind of trying to resurrect the idea of a symbolic vocabulary that relates particularly to women, mm -hmm. um, but also is quite a myth buster as well. So she also yeah. has that kind of balance of being, on the one hand, quite cynical, and on, on the other, I think she's quite optimistic quite often in her interpretation of things. So she really wants to believe that you know these these things have kind of some archaeological mythic significance yeah. as well. But she's been really important to you I think, as has. a writer. Yeah, and sometimes I wonder if if like I take her word for everything. Like I just believe her because I think she's so great. Like she, like if you look at her books, like she's just. But I don't really know. I don't know where she's done her research from because it's mental. Like she knows so much stuff about where these things come from, or at least she's invented it, and it seems to make a lot of sense to me. So, 
Um, but yeah, she is quite optimistic. And, and I mean, she's like, I did a residency at the Warburg Institute, which is all about like, the, the uh, way that symbols and signs, one of the things that they do there is look at the way that symbols and signs have crossed cultures. And she's like the, the god of that place. Like, yeah. She literally has done, written these amazing books. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, I don't really know what I would do without Barbara Walker. <laughs> Just look at look at everything in her books. It's so good. I think you should write to her. She's still alive. I know she is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think she's. She got big into knitting as well. Yeah, I know. But the knitting is not the thing. <laughs> yeah, her second career as a knitting guru. Um, but with when you were looking at the tarot, were you looking at all the different kinds of tarot sets of tarot designs, or was because I think there's also this interesting thing about um, the kind of women artists in the tarot deck as well. Sure. Yeah, I was. That was where I started, because um, so Frida Harris, who did, who illustrated the Thoth deck for Alistair Crowley, who if you don't know, Alistair Crowley is quite an evil man. Um, <laughs> sweeping statement there, but um, arguably quite an evil man. Um, anyway, she was completely like nobody ever talks about the fact that she actually illustrated that whole deck, and same with the Pamela Coleman Smith deck, which is really famous. Uh, probably the one that most people recognise um, is known as the Rider White and occasionally the Rider White Smith deck, um, but really it was it was her it was her baby and it was I mean she probably she was a bit, she's a bit like Barbara Walker like she was just taking symbols from everywhere and kind of <coughs> making them mean something, um, but yeah I I was looking at the way that women had been portrayed in the deck as well so the fact that. The, the the origins of tarot come from uh, from Christian iconography, so a lot of the women in it are repressed or representing repressive ideas, or um, and I really didn't want my deck to do that. So when I remade it, it was very much about not it, that not being the case. Did you also do a two dimensional version? Yes. It also wasn't just a sculpture. It was also. It started as a performance uh, where they have these really large um, sort of building blocks, and they the performers reconfigured them into architecture of each card um, and then I used the images from that to make the two-dimensional deck and then I used the two-dimensional deck to make the 3D dioramas. So it's like a, each one sort of related to the previous step. I mean I think when I've encountered your work before as well it's always had a performance element to it but not here. So I mean, I was so I was quite excited seeing the snail costumes in Dilston Groves. I was wondering whether there's going to be some kind of hot snail action going on, but <laughs> not. Why did you decide not? To, I mean, we've obviously got your performance films, which are great, mm -hmm. and it was brilliant. Being it was actually really hypnotic. Um, but why did you decide not to include performance as part of this show? I think, in a way, these sculptures are performing, and I've like I've always been really interested in seeing sculpture as a live event. And so, like something that you experience in presence, not in online, or you know, um, and and the, the, and this sort of feeling that the, the objects can come alive and be animated, um, which I think certainly with the wheels and so on in there, that kind of has that potential. But yeah, I mean, it's it. We decided it would be a sculpture show um, because I, I this was sort of one step of the project or the research that I was doing in gardens and the labyrinth performance was already there so this was like a, a new iteration or part of that conversation. 
Yeah, I really want to talk a bit about actually the sound in the labyrinth performance. Because when I said it was hypnotic, I mean, I think I came on a hot day like this on Saturday, and I was just, I was just kind of, I really was just getting quite mesmerised. And I just actually could have sat there all day. It was quite extraordinary. And it is something to do with the sound. And then you also have a kind of pink light coming through mm. as well, don't you? So you've got this very repetitive music, and then this, this, this very um, particular soundscape going on. Can you tell us a bit about how you did the sound for that? Because that also relates to some of the sculptures yeah. as well, doesn't it? So the bells that are on the shelf in the Lake Gallery, um, one of them I used, uh, recorded the sound and then synthesised into the soundscape. Um, so it's not like just the dong, but it's like elongated and so on. And there's also bird sounds in that piece, um, which I've sort of used to give a bit of variation to it and also because I used that as, as a live feed so when I did the lab when I did the orbit with the echoes um, it was it was a live feed with the animations coming over the top and no sound except for the sound of the, the pre-recorded stuff so I wanted this sense of the outdoors as well um, but yeah I mean the, the the whole point was for it to be was for it to be hypnotic as it would be to walk a labyrinth yeah. Where did you get this idea of these kind of ritual bells that have the characters as well? Because they are all, they do all seem like they're little characters, so the little figures that are kind yeah. of sitting there with their, their heads that you hold. Yeah. So they are, they, they are my sort of transcription of a, oh, I can't remember what BC um, bell idol that they found, those little god, goddess idol bells. Um, I mean, if you Google it, you'll see that image of the really famous one. She's got some sort of um, markings on her which look like symbols um, and yeah she just uh, she inspired that <laughs> and now they like, kind of make one ritually every time I'm making a work um, and I want to kind of talk a little bit about fountains so I think the first fountain of yours I saw was the one that won the Mother Art Prize which was a kind of cascade of tongues yeah why did you start Becoming interested in fountains as a sculptural form because I mean it's a bit like the monuments we've all been talking about recently they're another kind of part of the city that you tend to walk past mm. aren't they? Because in Rome there's so many so that's one reason it's like there's 2,000 fountains there it's hard to ignore them um, but also because of, because of, of water being the sort of origins of life and uh, our relation, like constantly considering our relationship to it, and I guess if you make work that is sort of dealing with any esoteric, slightly pagan um, mythologies or ideas, the elements—water, fire, air, earth—are constantly coming up, and they like need representation to me, like or constantly need animating. I mean, I don't work with fire yet. But the next one, maybe. The next one. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Pig bonfire. Um, now I'm going to try and pronounce this right, but I'm kind of probably going to get this wrong. Hip, hypnoautomatic polyphily. It's a good, it's a good try. That, I, I, the only reason that I think I know how to say it is because I put it on like Google Speak. Hypnoautomatic polyphily. Right. What is that, and why is it so important also to the fountains here? Yeah. So the so that book uh, is like 14th century Italian book. Uh, slightly debatable who wrote it um, and it was really really influential to God, Renaissance garden design so a lot of our ideas about like going on an initiatory journey, journey through a garden come from that book um, and it's got 170 odd woodcuts in it um, 
which is really what the book's good for because the story's terrible. Um, and in it, there's this image of a woman in classical costume pulling, well, costume, wearing classical clothes, pulling a fountain. There's also loads of other fountains in the book. But so, so the kind of fountain's on a cart, a wheeled yes. cart, and she's pulling it along. Yeah. It was like very much part of that time when Leonardo da Vinci was making machines and it would, everyone was getting really excited about hydraulics. So he sort of jumped on that bandwagon and then was making these drawings. So that then kind of influenced the idea, I mean, I, I guess all, all along you've been talking about the kind of theatre of gardens and the idea of the garden as a space that you, that's kind of full of dramatic potential. But then this also brought in the idea of the kind of the wheeled carts in there as well, yeah. as being part of that tradition as well. Yeah. Um, and we were also talking about pleasure gardens and Vauxhall pleasure garden, because I think one thing that really interests you is the, the is the woman's body in the garden as mm -hmm. well. So the Vauxhall pleasure garden that was quite you know there was obviously there was a lot of prostitution that was going yeah. on in mm -hmm. Vauxhall, and there was the idea that you could be in a concealed space and kind of you know getting off with someone mm -hmm. or or that you were just there being kind of delighted by things, mm -hmm. or on display as well, on display framed by the garden. Yeah, exactly. And women, women are, historically women are always being framed, framed by flowers, um, by gardens, enclosed in gardens. And the pleasure gardens are interesting because women tend to be shown as really repressed in the garden. There's no, there's no like flourish of emotion. There's no fountain flowing, um, and that like the Virgin Mary is there usually in the imagery of uh, enclosed gardens she's always the same age she's um, very like neat and respectable let's say with her baby um, but yeah lots of things like Ouija boards and stuff all have this like undertone of um, how to touch another person and the the pleasure gardens are a place that you can go and touch someone but not be seen, like hide behind bushes. That's sort of, I'm quite interested in those sorts of places and things. I've not thought about that with Ouija boards. The idea is that you all have your hands on it at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's can... often a, used as a way of like courting somebody, but in a sort of. Yeah, I've not made that connection at all. That's brilliant. And then I guess there's all the kind of orgasmic ectoplasm stuff going on, which Mike Kelly did all of that. Brilliant. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Come shot stuff. Exactly. Just, that's 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 radicalised my view of Ouija boards. Because <laughs> I didn't realise they had that kind of yeah, well, flirtatious thing. A lot of you know, so yeah, a lot of these sort of uh, sidelines of things, you know, where you can have experiences that are not allowed. That's so interesting as well because there is this whole idea about how women had this were allowed to have power within the, the kind of mystic realm in the, in the 19th century and mm -hmm. it was one of the few arenas where they were allowed to have some kind of authority even though it was seen as being a bit questionable. Mm -hmm. so, th so, there so I didn't realise it was also freighted with that erotic aspect as well. I think, well, certainly yeah, and uh, like in Anster Cowley's day like, there was yeah. a lot of erotic going on with the with it. Yeah. Now there's one thing, kind of, since we're on the subject of kind of sex, but um, this is a slightly different way of putting it, but I kind of, I've been thinking about your relationship with symbols and thinking about you being promiscuous with symbolic languages, yeah. which is not sexual, but I mean it's, but I quite like this idea that you're pulling from lots and lots of different um, disciplines, because it, in a way it seems like it's a kind of resistance to any kind of fundamentalism, mm -hmm. that you're just kind of pulling what you want from different places. 
Could you talk us through some of the symbolism in the works in this gallery? Because they're fretted with a lot of a lot of symbolism. There, are, there's a lot going on. And when you started talking about them, you were definitely talking about them as each having an individual symbolic character. And so there were so many things that I really hadn't necessarily seen at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, on the sort of thinking of uh, initiatory journeys, it is a sort of journey through. Um, through time, potentially my time, I don't know if it's a specific, as specific to me, but definitely some of my experiences. So the first, uh, the, the piece which is furthest from the entrance, the piece with the fountain. With the kind of uterus, yes. uterus fountain on the top. I see that as the maiden. So there's three intertwined uteruses because the when, when you have a female fetus, the female fetus also has their eggs. So you've got three generations, partial generations in one. So there's three intertwined there at the top. But above that is the octopus. And the, uh, in Other Minds, which is a book by Peter Jeffrey, something or other, um, he talks about how the octopus separated in evolution from humans at a specific, at a very early point. And so they're like the furthest from us evolutionarily um, and therefore they're closest to a sort of alien on earth and uh, I like this idea that I'm, I'm interested in that we start off as fetuses in water and we also started off on sort of earth and water um, so that's a sort of be becoming piece coming into life and obviously there's water coming up and then that had that had so that had particular associations with it so it was the maiden but it's also the fish the fish yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like if we, we were to kind of categorise as bird, beast, fish, flower, and uh, mother, maiden, and crone. So the next one along the purple pieces, I sort of see as mother, and it does um, have a cloisters on it. So it's slightly reminiscent of some of the medieval enclosed gardens. Um, it's also got a, a a boob urn in the middle of it, um, which isn't spilling milk, but uh, instead it's got this sort of um, contortion of arms above it which have hands on one end, human hands on one end and animal hands on the other so it's sort of metamorphosing um, and then there's other symbols about abundance in there like the cornucopia and then there's a, there's a sort of hand holding a flower which is like I took from a paint from a fresco of flora pointing to a flower, flora the goddess pointing to a flower and there's a horse, there's a, there's a conker that turns into a vagina. Vagina, yeah. exactly, yeah, which has got claw on the top. Because um, seeds are supposed to be, seeds are supposed to be the, ma the male to the female earth. So that piece is also earth, beast, mother. And then the tortoises with the faces. Faces, because in Bommaso, in, um, in Rome, there's this amazing sculpture of a massive tortoise with this female form above, like on the back. And then I found out that there used to be these, this is just like, it's not really why I made it, but it's just a nice thought. Um, in Turkey, apparently, they used to have um, candles on the back of tortoises so that they'd like dance around. And because the piece is also about like milk and abundance and the Milky Way, I like this idea of these lights kind of moving about on the back of the tortoise. Um, couldn't find any images of that. But there is a painting of, called the, tor the Tortoise Trainer 
that would be a thankless task, I feel. Yeah. Um, and then the, the frogs on the top also have a... Met metamorphosis. I mean, there's also, like, um, frogs are supposed to be... Uh, in ancient Egypt, they were uh, midwifery charms. So you often see them around um, things to do with giving life. Um, and then the last one, the back cage one, is the crone. The sort of typical idea of death is the bat, but actually it's bringing... Uh, the reason it's in a protected species is because it's bringing the seeds. Um, it's an essential part of the ecosystem for reprodu reproducing life. Um, there's also this amazing fresco in Pisa of a flying um, god death goddess, and she's got big bat wings, and she's got a big scythe. But this one's enclosed. I mean, I haven't actually mentioned any of the symbols relating to the park, but they do also relate to... There's things in there which relate to the park itself. So there used to be an aviary here. Um, and there's a rare bat. There's a rare bat. Um, well, I was going to talk about the relationship to the park after, so just kind of go through your litany. And then you've also... But you brought a kind of fourth figure into that. Yes. I think you felt like this was a slightly limiting way to see... The world, yeah. The world, or the world of women as well, yeah. kind of maiden, mother, and crone. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted something to like cut that up a bit, and um, that's all about reproducing, and uh, that's not just what that's not just how I see myself. But I have, I've got two children now. Like that's been a big part of my life for the last few years. Um, but it isn't the only thing, and so I wanted this piece that was about something else, and um, it, it's also. The flower, so if it was going to go bird, beast, fish, flower, that one's the flower. The flower of, of, is often um, used as a sort of picture of the vagina. So that piece was like, there is actually no flower, it's just the pelvic bone. And it's a, um, a version of a Leonorfini painting where there's an older woman pointing to the pelvis and then there's a younger girl and she's sort of demonstrating to her about it. So it's a sort of piece about education, but also about like this massive opening up of the pelvis that we could that we can be open and enjoy, and sex is part of an enjoyment of life, not just about reproduction. So um, there's there's the swan because I was thinking a lot about later in the swan and the repression of women. Um, they were either allowed to be shown in that neat, dignified way that. The Virgin Mary's always shown, or they were sh they were shown enjoying pleasure with a swan, or the other version is that she was raped. So um, I wanted the swan like coming out of the out of the pelvis, not um, in this like like alarmed way, um, and then the finger sort of pointing. So it's uh, yeah, like opening up, perhaps a warning, perhaps a uh, enjoyment. Yeah, it's a little bit more ambiguous. Leonor Feeney is a really important figure for you, isn't she? Yeah. How, how did you find out about her work? Because actually it's, it's been shown a bit in the last few years, but it's been quite hard to get hold of yeah. stuff about her. I can't remember where I first saw her work, but yeah, she is really important. She's all, she's so theatrical as a person, her, all like her, her paintings of herself. She's always in disguise. It's always about like who she, how she wanted to project herself and who she wanted to be and that constant like switching of her um, and then they're, they're sort of teetering on the edge of surrealism the paintings I mean maybe they just some people just see them as completely surrealist but there's always these like um, the uh, persistent presence of classical forms in her work as well which I also use so 
Yeah, which came in from your Roman gardens. So yeah, yeah, which and then came from the Roman gardens into the British gardens yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think also one thing that's interesting about Feeney is that she makes works that are very frankly about desire as well. Yeah. Yeah, they're very sexy paintings, and she's looking at naked men, and she's thinking about you know she's being quite frank about her sexuality as well, mm -hmm. which is. Um, I think when we were talking, you were, you were saying that you were now interested in, in, in kind of what was coming after this series, potentially being investigating kind of joy and pleasure a bit more as well. Yeah, I think that last piece about the uh, lady in the swan, it's like that, that's like the, the beginning of a new like uh, dimension, like to, to thinking about my body in the world and uh, you know, post having had babies, it's not really about the reproduction anymore. So, yeah. <laughs> now, there's there's another work that kind of complements these th what's in here that's in the other space, which is the grotto that we've oh, yeah. not really spoken about at all. Um, and that's obviously there's again you've got this kind of you know promiscuousness with symbols that's kind of packed with. Mm -hmm images and objects and things that are kind of that have all kinds of different um, resonances but I was particularly interested by the hair can you tell us a bit about why there's a piece of like a kind of hank of hair there in this grotto so the, uh, the it is believed that in ancient Rome girls and boys would go and cut off their youthful locks and leave them in the grotto to the go whoever the goddess was which was often Venus but um, or her counterparts um, yeah so they would leave it and then it was a sort of coming of age moment but when I was thinking about grottos and, and, what, and how we experience grottos or the re-articulation of grottos in today places like the Margate Shell Grotto doesn't have any sort of sensibility of that like what it was used for or how you would engage in that space and so, um, so I was researching that and then also thinking about Venus herself and the way that she's depicted by Botticelli as this woman of hair and she's covering up her modesty with her hair so um, so that's, that just seemed like a bizarre coincidence and then my mum had given me this massive lock of my hair from when I was nine and she, she, she sort of chopped it all off and it was, it was quite severe and it was like this real moment of not being a little girl anymore and um, it all yeah I think I said to you it's probably like my most succinct and easy to explain piece because it is just all of those references in there and then then like all the shells are you know sort of splitting open and kind of there's the water gushing so there's a kind of coming of age yeah piece to an extent as well yeah definitely but then with the mirror behind us as well so that you're implicit in it yeah yeah um, so the, I mean these are all that work and these look at very much look at elements that are in the garden and the and the idea of um, sculptural structures through the garden, so follies and grottos and fountains and kind of aesthetic ruins and things. Mm -hmm. What elements have you taken from? I mean, I know that it's not the the prime inspiration, but what elements have you taken from this setting in Southwark as well? So uh, I mentioned the the bat. There's a rare rare, rare bat here. I don't know if I would have made that bat piece if that hadn't been the case. It's sort of what led me down thinking of the bat. So it just has formed quite a lot of the thinking, but yeah, it's, it's not so explicit. Um, so the, the bat and the aviary, and I was looking a lot at the, sort of how the garden had been formed and things that had happened, like the swans that they brought 
when they dug the trench for the lake, there was like some sort of story surrounding it. So the, the, these prized um, swans, like it couldn't be open without the swans. They had to be there. Um, and what then, I don't know. So, the, so it was just like that, basically the, the king's, I think it might have been the king's, I can't remember the date. Um, swans didn't arrive in time, so they, they like ruined the, the opening ceremony. Um, when was this? I can't remember dates. I mean, like a long time ago or recently. I mean, in modern history, I'd like to say. Okay. Yeah, looking at Judith. <laughs> um, yeah. But like three years ago? Or no, like, no, no, no. Like a hundred years ago, I think, okay. around that, maybe a bit more. <laughs> um, sorry, really bad with dates. Um, hence me just folding them all on top of each other. Um, so that was one. And then um, other ones. Oh, yeah, the Ada Salter uh, Garden. So Ada Salter was um, this Bermondsey, um, she lived here and she was a social, uh, well she was a socialist, she was a member of the Labour Party, women's labour group. Um, she was really, really influential to the design of London having plant, uh, what they call plane trees um, and for the beautification of, of Southwark um, or Bermondsey and she has this garden that's just down there which is an enclosed garden. It has these pagoda, pagolas and the little balustrades around it. And I just couldn't really believe that they put this woman in. The, I mean, it happened when she was alive, and I guess she didn't object to it, but it's so typical to put a, a women's rose garden surrounded by a wall. Um, so, she, so she came into the whole thinking about Hortus Conclusus. Um, but of course, there's something that's so... Um, deliberately kind of unnatural and unclassical about all of your work as well. Yeah. So you're, you've got this real kind of riposte to there being this kind of lovely, natural carved stone and this, you know, all of the colours derived from nature. So you've got, your works are, you know, they're very bright, they're very painted, mm -hmm. they've got a slightly kind of psychedelic aspect to them. Why is colour so important in your work? I'm just like a child of the 90s, I think, and like 90s platform games, computer games. Like really? I think so about like the world through that, you know, like late 80s, 90s vision. I, I don't know. So are they, like, like the, are they like the contemporary equivalent of going to a pleasure garden, do you think, that kind of making your way through the labyrinth? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I definitely like, it's, it's such a big influence, like all of that way of thinking, like I use grids quite a lot, I use repeated forms, um, and I think about journeys from one end to the other. So, yeah, it's, it does come up a lot, but, but every time somebody asks me about my relationship to colour, they always want me to say that, like every, well, I'm not saying that you always say this, but people often want me to say that like there's a symbolic reason for using each colour, because there's so many symbols in the work, and actually it's literally just like painting a picture, I think of it in terms of like cadence or rhythm of the work, and which things work together and I'm like the way that I use the jasmineite colour is it's like layered up and sanded back to give it this sort of effect of time so there's this falseness um, and um, I just like it animates the space for me. But I do feel like it's also a riposte to classical elegance as well. Oh yeah I mean the, the whole idea of beauty and um, uh, you know refined sculpture um, I'm like definitely pushing against that or like expectation of sculpture to be this like purest form. 
And then the final work, I guess, that relates to the park we've not mentioned is under the cloche as well. Oh yeah, the the Dilston Grove. So there's like a little Dilston Grove, which is the um, I sort of imagined if this was a sort of world like Hieronymus Bosch's Earthly Delights is this world where all these things can take place. The outside of his painting had this has the um, Axis Mundi, the, and his version is like the circle with the plane and things starting to happen on it. And so I wanted a way of like enclosing these works. And I'm really interested in scale, like everything's shifting between scales all the time and also shifting between perspectives, like inside it, outside it, or like whether you're, yeah, all my perspectives. Um, so this is a, this is like enclosing this world um, surrounded by the, these dried flowers. I guess it's like when you're talking about the triple uterus, the idea of the mother having the potential for her grandchildren already in, already her. in her body as well. So it's, um, yeah, kind of like the powers of ten, yeah. zooming in and out. I'm co- yeah, I'm constantly thinking about things zooming in and out. There's also something very kind of controlled about putting something in a cloche as well. It stops it from changing. Yeah, I mean, it's a little greenhouse, so it's also about like fertility yeah. and growing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's there's the whole idea of um, the garden as a controlled space, I think, is really fascinating. I was talking to Laura Ford, and she has all of these figures that are, um, I can't even say that, I can't say the word. So when you prune a fruit tree so that it stands out, oh, yeah, espaliered. Um, yeah, I know what you mean, but I don't know. So she has these characters that are espaliered women, and so it's the idea of like a kind of like an ornamental tree they've been kind of yeah, almost right. curied into a controlled shape. And there's just such a parallel between the kind of control of minds, the control of bodies, and the control mm-hmm. of the gardens as well. And it was all kind of happening in that same, mm-hmm. I think in a kind of similar period as well, of kind of imposing systems. So I quite like the fact that you're almost kind of bursting out of that and there's this kind of free world of symbols that kind of floating away from systems as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a, like, I hope that's how it feels. Like, you can't, nothing can quite be pinned down into quite the right category and like the right sort of control zone. Yeah. And then St. Lucy is another character that pops up quite a lot as well. She does. Um, she's in the Labyrinth performance animations. How the sort of eyes reappear, eyes constantly reappearing. But she's a very important figure, I think, just for artists in general because she's, you know, about sight and about. Yeah, she. D- I, yeah, I feel like quite a few artists use Saint Lucy actually. Yeah. yeah. But I guess it's like the kind of ultimate nightmare as an artist is. All your hands. Yeah, all your hands and your eyes. Going. Yeah. Thank you Thank very you. much. <laughs> it was really fascinating, and congratulations on the show. It's a real Thank you. triumph. Thanks. Um, <laughs> Thank you all for coming on the show.